episode three of my podcast, Clean Slate, New Ideas for Justice and Democracy. Episode three is about the history of hyperinflation in Germany after World War I and why we have it wrong and why that matters. Because many economists, historians, and news articles will seek to explain the dangers of hyperinflation, inflation that's just completely out of control, where the value of your money is plummeting and your prices are going up sometimes every day or every week. And they look to Germany in the 1920s to explain it and to talk about why it's such a problem and how dangerous it is politically. But the history of that is almost entirely wrong. So getting it right really matters because this is one of the most famous episodes and we're trying to take the right lessons from it. In the mid-1920s, there was a period of hyperinflation in Germany when the value of money dropped so badly that people were wheeling cash around in wheelbarrows or using it as wallpaper. It's also known, people make this connection, that Hitler and the Nazis came to power sometime after this. And they link the two together and make the mistaken conclusion that hyperinflation led to the rise of fascism and to the Second World War. This is not accurate history. And it's sometimes used to warn as the dangers of inflation. There are other people who warned against it as well. Keynes has also warned against the dangers of inflation in his Economic Consequences of the Peace, which was about 1919 settlement of the war, which caused all these problems. So this matters for a lot of reasons. The real story is worth repeating to get the order of events straight. So in the 1920s, Germany was faced with massive debts, in particular to France and Belgium, to pay war reparations. And according to French and British wishes, Germany was subjected to strict punitive measures under the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. The new German government was required to surrender approximately 10% of its pre-war territory in Europe and all of its overseas possessions. The harbor city of Danzig, now Gdansk, and Kolrich Saarland were placed under the administration of the League of Nations, and France was allowed to exploit the economic resources of the Saarland until 1935. The German army and navy were limited in size. Kaiser Wilhelm II and a number of other high-ranking German officials were to be tried as war criminals. Under the terms of Article 231 of the treaty, the Germans accepted responsibility for the war and as such were liable to pay financial reparations to the Allies, though the actual amount would be determined by an inter-Allied commission that would present its findings in 1921. The amount they determined was 132 billion gold Reichsmarks, or $32 billion, which came on top of an initial $5 billion payment demanded by the treaty. Now, again, this period of hyperinflation is one of the best-known episodes in history, and to give an indication of the way prices would change, if you had a loaf of bread that cost 160 marks at the end of 1922, that same loaf of bread cost 200 billion marks a year later. 160 ending there to 200 billion marks a year later. The Nazis did not come to power until more than half a decade after the hyperinflation had come to an end. The explosion in money printing in Germany in 1922 and 1923 was not actually by the government at all. A clearer story has been produced in a working paper of the International Monetary Fund, and it was in fact a consequence of a policy blunder by the Allies who insisted that the government be stripped of its role in supervising or running the central bank. Now, this is a quote from that International Monetary Fund paper. 
The Reichsbank president at the time, Hjalmar Schacht, put the record straight on the real causes of that episode in Schacht, 1967. Specifically, in May 1922, the Allies insisted on granting total private control over the Reichsbank. That private institution then allowed private banks to issue massive amounts of currency until half the money in circulation was private bank money that the Reichsbank readily exchanged for Reichsmarks on demand. The private Reichsbank also enabled speculators to short-sell the currency, which was already under severe pressure due to the transfer problems of the reparations payments pointed out by Keynes in 1929. It did so by granting lavish Reichsmark loans to speculators on demand, which they could then exchange for foreign currency when forward sales of Reichsmarks matured. When Schacht was appointed in late 1923, he stopped converting private monies to Reichsmark on demand, he stopped granting Reichsmark's loans on demand, and he furthermore, he made the new Rentenmark non-convertible against foreign currencies. The result was that speculators were crushed and the hyperinflation was stopped. Further support for the currency came from the Dawes plan that significantly reduced unrealistically high reparations payments. This episode can therefore clearly not be blamed on excessive money printing by a government-run central bank, but rather on a combination of excessive reparations claims and of massive money creation by private speculators aided and abetted by a private central bank. So it was not the German government that was responsible for hyperinflation at all. It was the private central bank, which allowed private banks to print their own currency, to offer credit that was convertible into government marks on demand. Effectively, it gave private banks a license to print money, and they did. And it gave speculators money to gamble on whether hyperinflation tends to be caused by a country having to pay off debts in another country's currency. This is the reason for every instance of hyperinflation except one, Zimbabwe, which also had special circumstances that deserve their own article. There is no evidence that printing money in a moderate way for domestic use causes uncontrolled inflation. It's always printing money associating with paying off foreign debts. The hyperinflation in Germany stopped when they introduced the new currency in November 1923. It was a period of serious economic disruption, but it is not what led to the rise of fascism in Germany. Hitler did not come to power in 1923 or 1924. In the German elections of 1924, the Nazi party only received 3% of the vote. After that hyperinflation until 1929, Germany actually had the fastest growing economy in the world. That growth ended in 1929 with the Wall Street crash and financial crisis that started the Depression. After that, the top five economies around the world were all shrinking, and for the first years, they all pursued cuts in austerity. And as Mark Blythe has argued at length in his outstanding book, Austerity, History of a Dangerous Ideas, austerity doesn't work, and it results in very nasty politics. After 1929, in Germany, conservatives and social democrats alike pursued austerity. The Nazis stayed a fringe party over several elections, with their vote growing as the economy sputtered and suffering got worse, until they were elected in 1933 on a promise of jobs. They did get the economy running again, mostly by building up the military. Now, in the 1930s, France might have been able to put a check on Germany's expansion by also investing in a military buildup. 
but they opted for cuts and austerity instead as well. And they were in no position to offer any meaningful resistance to a German invasion, which happened. In Japan, for many years, the major target for budget cuts was the military. And over the 1920s, the military's share of the government budget was cut in half. After a number of years and continued cuts, the response from the military was increased radicalization and outright assassinations. A number of senior officials were assassinated by the military in Japan. A number of senior officials were assassinated by the military, including two prime ministers. In late 1931, an army plot to overthrow the Japanese government was uncovered, which was related to the years of cuts. A decade of austerity had convinced the Japanese military that they were at war with the entire civilian political elite. A number of other officials were murdered in a failed coup in 1936, but the die was cast and spending opened up for the Japanese military and war on China in 1937. Ultimately, austerity means stripping people of money and stripping them of control and leaving them powerless. The assumption is that the economy will just recover its balance and come back to equilibrium on its own. It won't. As people fight over scarce resources, it leads to conflict and the splintering of societies along any number of tribal and tribal nationalist lines. It was not hyperinflation that led to the Nazis, it was austerity. It was austerity that led to the extreme nationalism and militarism of Japan. These were the two major Axis powers in the Second World War who pursued empires through invasion and a conquest as a means to build wealth. As FDR put it, people who are hungry and out of a job are the stuff of which dictatorships are made. Keynes quit the Versailles peace talks of 1919, warning that the consequences of the peace, the reparations demanded of Germany, would result in a war in 20 years. He was right, right down to the year. That's why, after the Second World War, the solution was to do the opposite of what happened after the first. The Marshall Plan, M-A-R-S-H-A-L, not Marshall Law, M-A-R-T-I-A-L, the Marshall Plan, named after General Marshall, would rebuild Europe, including a plan that in 1948 introduced the Deutschmark and reset the entire German economy. The Deutschmark replaces the Reichsmark in three Western zones. The Deutschmark banknotes had already been printed in the United States at the end of 1947 and were then brought to Frankfurt as part of the secret Operation Bird Dog. The banknotes were distributed as of Sunday, the 20th of June. In exchange for 60 Reichsmarks, every citizen of the Western zones received 40 Deutschmarks directly from the ration offices, followed by a further 20 Deutschmarks in a second tranche shortly thereafter. In other words, people were getting an exchange of their money one for one. Basically, they replaced the entire currency. As of the 21st of June, the Deutschmark was the sole legal tender, and everyday payments such as wages, salaries, insurance, and rents were converted at a rate of one to one. However, those with savings were hit hard. Reichsmark balances are gradually converted to Deutschmark at a rate of less than 1 to 10. When they say those with savings were hit hard, it's really the lenders who were hit hard and the borrowers who got off. In effect, it was a complete reversal of everything that was done because it relieved debts instead of adding to them as a way of creating peace and building prosperity instead of making it worse, instead of creating division and creating economic distress. That was the big lesson between the First World War, the Second World War, and the hyperinflation in between. 
We've lost a lot of these lessons, but they're really, really important when it comes to how do we rebuild societies? How do we come together to work in peace? And how do we actually make things work? All right, that's it. Thank you so much. I hope you're enjoying it. If you're appreciating this, let me know. Uh, it's great to hear that you are. Thanks so much. 